Dr. R.J. Rushduni, RR161AL70, Presuppositions for Education, from the Easy Chair, Excellent Colloquies on Various Subjects. This is R.J. Rushduni, Easy Chair number 176, July 18, 1988. Again, we have Sam Blumenfeld with Otto and Gary Mose and myself. And we're going to continue our discussion of education, but from a somewhat different angle. Education will be governed by what a person believes. And it makes all the difference in the world uh, whether or not you believe in God or in evolution. If you believe in God, you believe that law, power, morality, and life come from above, come from God. But if you believe that uh, all things have evolved out of a primeval chaos, then all law and morality, uh, everything comes from below. And you have what Dr. Cornelius Van Til called integration downward into the void. He said, man is then understood in terms of the child, the child in terms of the unconscious, and the uh, human being in terms of the animal, the animal in terms of ancient primeval drives and so on. Integration downward into the void. Now, some years ago, there was a very telling observation made by the then editor of the New Republic. This was in the post-World War I era. Kenneth Burke, in Permanence and Change, predicted that by the middle of the century, the United States would perhaps see a major revival of occultism and Satanism. He wasn't sure of the timing, but he knew it was coming because he said men need grace. And if they don't seek grace from God, they're going to seek demonic grace. Well, this means that a Christian school is going to look for power and law and morality from God, from above. But a state school that is based on evolution is going to seek it from below. So with that, let's open the discussion. Who'd like to go first? Sam, would you well, like yeah. to? Uh, yeah, um, you're right about the, the uh, what evolution uh, does in uh, having the child look downward uh, because, you know, we often talk about the, the link, the missing link. The, the evolutionists are always talking of the missing link and in evolution the child's link is downward toward the animal kingdom while in a Christian school the child's uh, link is toward heaven, toward God and it's upward. So you have the upward reach versus the downward plunge and, and you know there's no end to how far down you can go once you get on the path toward uh, depravity. And since man is sinful by nature, 
to appeal to that that sinful nature, to actually encourage it by singing, uh, by having the, the youngsters emulate the animal kingdom, only aggravates things and, and really puts the child in, in terrible danger and, and at terrible risk of damnation. Uh, so we're actually, uh, when we're teaching uh, ex, uh, evolution in the schools and telling children that they're little animals uh, and that their connection is downward to the animal kingdom, we're relegating them to hell. We're damning them. Well, actually, they're, uh, they're teaching a confused uh, set of ideas. For instance, the environmental movement is uh, up in arms to save the snail darter or the black-footed ferret, or etc. Now, why should an evolutionist be against the extinction of a species? Yes since evolution is based on the fact that species mm -hmm. become extinct and are replaced by uh, more complex and better equipped organisms. Then there is the idea that all the forms of life that are in existence are equally sacred, which is animism. And what you're really talking about, once you put together the animism, and once you put together the worship of animals, which is what's involved, mm -hmm. or the idea that everything is a sentient being, the trees have spirits, a la the Greeks, the flowers, the grass, and whatever, is that you have the rise of ancient forms of religion that were well known in the Middle East and well known in the time of Jesus. The mysteries, the uh, the uh, orgies, yes. the idea of the sex cults, and the belief in astrology, uh, plus the kinship with the animals, plus the idea that sex is sacred, yes. and and the whole thing. So what you your what the kids are getting is everything that Christianity at one time overcame. Mm -hmm. So you push Christianity off the board first, and all the rest of this comes out. Oh, yeah. You revert to pre-Christian paganism. But another thing that's wrong with evolution is that in its, it's, it's a false doctrine. First place, it preaches that you can get something out of nothing, that the earth came out of uh, nowhere. They don't know where. They by accident. Yes, by accident. Then they tell us that uh, living matter came out of non-living matter, yes. evolved or emerged, as sure. and Pasteur proved that that can't happen. Right. I mean, the whole germ theory is based on, on right. that. And then they tell us that one species can develop or evolve into another species. Mm -hmm. They have never been able to demonstrate that in a laboratory. No. For example, they've been experimenting with, with uh, fruit flies for years, because fruit flies you know, just yeah. and they've tried everything no, to get food flies with radium and everything right else. to develop into another species, but right. they keep becoming more fruit flies. Yeah, you know, you know, and and so because they haven't found the missing link, and and they have millions of fossils in museums, and they haven't found the missing link, so now they call it. Uh, um, um, some sort of, uh, what, what is the term that, that they've now, punctuated equilibrium. Mm. That suddenly new species appear, and that's a result of punctuated equilibrium. So they no longer even believe in evolution, but they preach it. 
despite the fact that, that it hasn't been proved in the laboratory or through fossils or, or, uh, or through any other means. I know, but when it, was, uh, when it appeared in 1859 in The Origin of the Species, it was accepted as proof that God did not exist. Mm -hmm. And it is still the belief of the school teachers that it proves that God does not exist. Yeah. And it is, their, it is their rationale for keeping God out of education. Yes. Ah, but you That's know, its appeal. Rush, maybe you can answer this question, but there are Christians who say, well, maybe that was God's method. You've, have you uh, heard oh, of Christians who said, yes, I accept evolution because, well, maybe that was God's way of creation. Yes, How do you answer that? A good many of the Christian colleges teach theistic evolution. Well, uh, one scientist, a uh, man who had won 9, 10, 11 international prizes in genetics, told me that scientifically it was more credible to have... Uh, special creation in six days than to try to mix two alien concepts of chance variations in evolution with God somehow behind the whole thing. He said it just didn't gel. They were two alien ideas. Mm -hmm. And I believe that he was right philosophically. It doesn't hold. Uh, this phrase that Russ used at the beginning, uh, integration downward into chaos, I believe. Into the void. Into yes. the void, yeah. Uh, reminds me of uh, part of your uh, formal discussion, which I heard recently, uh, Sam, uh, when you were talking about uh, the growth of death education. Seems to me that that uh, relates to that concept of integration downward into the void. Maybe you can share with the tape audience what's happening in death education these days well death education is a is the new the newest of the great fads in public education that's part of the affective domain uh, they're teaching children or uh, to write their own obituaries to plan their own funerals to choose the music for their funerals they take children to funeral parlors uh, uh, on field trips some of the kids try out the coffins uh, one mother told me that her daughter actually watched a mortician embalm a corpse. Really? Oh, yes. Oh, yes. This is going on all over the United States. Mm -hmm. As a matter of fact, the uh, editor of a conservative, a very conservative uh, journal uh, sent his child to a public school, and I warned him, you'd better be careful. These things are going on. I suppose he didn't believe me, but that child came home in the second grade with an arithmetic problem based on the reading of an obituary. And after one lecture, a young man came up to me, uh, a young adult, and he told me that when he was in, in high school, his math teacher took them to a cemetery, took the class to a cemetery. And he said that that particular experience had left a black spot in his heart that he could not get rid of. Well, yes. You know, I, I, that was something that remained permanent. So this, this playing with death is a very dangerous business. What because is their purpose? They're equating death and life as equally valid. They are, in effect, teaching them that life is not worth living. And to me, it is an appalling fact that parents are not breaking down the doors of the schools to protest. 
Fifty years ago, they could not have done that. Sort oh, they dare. They wouldn't have wouldn't dared. Dare. Yeah. Now they're getting away with it, and it gets it gets more morbid all the time. I've seen these manuals for What teachers. have we developed? A slave population? We've. De I think it's so. the world over. This is happening. Yes. But you know, as as Russia's pointed out, and quoting the scripture, it says, "They who hate me love death." Oh, yes. And the schools hate Jesus Christ, and they love death. Well, they hate God. Yeah, at the very that. same time, uh, communities can't figure out why we have this tremendous increase in teenage suicide. In yes. And it's a result of the fact that they're teaching two lethal things. They're teaching the children to hate life and love death. And the editorial writers of the newspapers, as they comment about the rising tide of suicide and call for study, never tell the readers they were educated for this goal. Right. They well, this, this explains the, 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 uh, the plunge into drugs. Yes, sure. it's a way of dying. Well, it's, 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 it's temporary oblivion. Uh, it's, it's a release from worry. You know, life has its pains, and uh, if you're alive and sober, you feel things. Are you... Uh, you know, there was a uh, there was a high school at uh, west of Boston where they've had a, a whole spate of suicides, and I decided to visit that high school and find out why the kids were killing themselves. And I walked into the principal's office and I asked him, "Why are so many of your kids committing suicide?" And he said, "We don't know. We just mm. don't know." Mm. Uh, well, then I asked, "Do you teach death education?" He said, "Oh yes." Mm. I said, "How long?" He said, "Oh, for about twelve years." Mm -hmm. So I said, uh, well, who teaches death education? And he told me, our health education teacher. So I said, well, can I interview him? And he said, sure, why not? And so he called down the health education teacher, a young man in his early 40s, I suppose. And we went up to the school library. He gave his class some, some make work. And uh, I asked the, the man, I said, uh, why are the kids committing suicide in your school? He said, we just don't know. I said, well, uh, uh, what books, what textbook do you use for your, your death education? And he showed me this random house textbook that had a very a big chapter on death education with a big thing on suicide. And I asked him, uh, isn't it possible that some youngsters are, uh, uh, you know, uh, react poorly to this sort of thing, that some youngsters may be allergic to death education. He said, oh no, oh no, death education does not have, can possibly have a bad effect on children. Now how could he have known that? You see, he couldn't have known it, but he had to say that because if he admitted that even one child committed suicide because of something they were teaching in the class, he would, they would have to stop it. Well then I asked him, are things going to get better or worse? And he asked me, well, what do you mean by better or worse? Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. Are those esoteric what, words? Yes. <laughs> what part of better don't yes, you understand? Yes, I said, well, by better I mean fewer suicides or an end to the suicide. And his reply was, well, that's a matter of opinion if that's better or worse. Mm -hmm. Well, I left that school, I was just shocked. But then I began to understand what he meant. You see, they're teaching the children that suicide is a viable alternative to your problems. Yeah, it's a solution. And if some kids are committing suicide, that means they're learning the lesson. Remember Saturday, Otto, we were discussing on the way to San Jose and back the fact that the Islamic world uh, 
went into a decline as it went into drugs. Yes. And at first some rulers fought the drug culture, but little by little they came to accept it because it created a docile population. Mm. Not a uh, problem-free population, mm. but, but a population that was not rebelling, mm -hmm. not overthrowing mm -hmm. the uh, authorities. Well, today we are creating a drug culture that is incapable of any organized activity, only to destroy itself. Well, yes, and do something to get the money to get the drugs. Mm -hmm. And uh, what, of course, I've been puzzled about what I've been calling to myself the growing cowardice of the American people. Uh, the lack of courage, lack of expression. Um, that doesn't mean lack of hostility. It doesn't mean lack of crime. But there are fantastic amounts of crime being committed against defenseless women. Mm -hmm. And the men aren't doing anything about it. And the police are not doing anything about it. Well, you know what's happened? The American people have become impotent neutralized. You see, what happens when you keep bombarding people with conflicting stimuli, like Pavlov dogs? I guess so they're free. Uh, yeah, they can't do anything because if they go to the left, that's undesirable. If they go to the right, that's undesirable. So better to do nothing. That's why the American public no longer reacts. Have you noticed how you can do anything now and there's no reaction? I mean, anything goes. Well, if you go to a movie, if you've been to the movies lately, the audience is scary. Yeah. It laughs at the wrong places. Yes. You also notice that the Soviet Union is now importing this rock music yes. to pacify the young people. And pretty soon, I'm sure they're going to even encourage drugging the young kids because, as you say, it, it uh, creates a docile population and they're running out of ways to handle. This is what uh, Sprengler called the Fellaheen uh -huh. and the Age of the Magi. You remember? Yes. And here we have the shaman appearing, uh -huh. televangelists. Uh -huh. They're really shamans. These are types that arise in the age of, of the masses. They, they're sort of mag magicians. They're not theologians. They're not Christian. I mean, I, I listened to Jimmy Swaggart several times for almost five minutes, and I oh. had to fall back. I couldn't stand it. Well, and and we've got these types that are emerging. They yeah. don't make any sense, yeah. but great music. And of course, they have a combination of uh, immorality and great spiritual pretension. Well, I know uh, Russ the other day was talking about the star system that has developed among uh, ministers in the United States that has been detrimental to Christianity because it, the, the Christians have become passive, a passive audience responding uh, to, uh, uh, to these great stars up there, these, these great uh, figures who then, of course, turn out to have clay feet. Uh, as, as usually happens. You have educators of the same type. Yeah. Mm -hmm. But getting back to, to education, to the evolution of education, there is so much 
in the process that's based on evolution. For example, behavioral psychology is all derived from the theory of evolution and it permeates every aspect of the public school curriculum. Uh, then you have eugenics, which is also derived from evolution, the idea that you can uh, create a super race or better people through genetic uh, uh, engineering. And one of the reasons why blacks are getting such an inferior education in the United States is because the progressives relegated the blacks to vocational education. They said they simply didn't have the intellectual capacity for an academic education so that we might as well turn them into, you know, uh, servants and uh, uh, manual laborers. And, in this and age of integration? Oh, no, this happened, this happened early in the century when oh, eugenics yes. was very big, you I remember? See. Yes. Uh, but those policies were set then. Yes. And they're still... Uh, still used. Still used, but nobody knows where they came from. They assume that that's the way things are done. Uh -huh. And uh, the use of Pavlovian techniques is also... Uh, uh, very much in the schools. Uh, for example, the look-say method depends on Pavlovian uh, repetition, conditioning techniques in teaching reading. So uh, the, 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 the theory of evolution is so totally within the system. It's not something that's simply taught in biology, Rush. Yes. It just it's permeates the entire system. It's the religion of public education. It's one of the reasons that history has been brushed off the table. Yes. Because the theory being, if it's old, it isn't as good as what's new. Therefore, history, being part of the past, is of no value. Yeah. It was more than 25 years ago that Stanford relegated, for example, Roman history to the Latin department. It was not a part of the history department, per se. It was about the same time that Columbia University cut off the Middle Ages. It went from Rome to 1660 and, and, and dropped everything in between. You know, it's interesting, Rush, how uh, science today is, is based on uh, uh, evolution, creationism is kept out of the schools, and yet our great scientists, Newton, for example, was a not only a great uh, a Christian, but he also realized that science provided us the means to understand God's order, because he saw an orderly universe, and the early Christian scientists saw an orderly universe, and now we're told that we have a chaotic uh, universe. Let me just quote what Newton said about the planets. He said, this most beautiful system of sun, planets, and comets could only proceed from the counsel and dominion of an intelligent and powerful being. This being governs all things, not as the soul of the world, but as Lord over all. Now that was said by, you know, by Isaac Newton, well, the great you know, scientist. The last 50 years of his life, all his writings are in the British Museum in Latin and have never been translated because he concentrated on the Bible and especially on the Old Testament feeling that that was the repository of all scientific knowledge mm. and it's never been translated because it has been assumed ever since his death that he wasted his time uh, they actually say sometimes that he was uh, a bit dotty 
and that's why he confined himself increasingly to that kind of writing. But of course he wasn't the only one. Leibniz said, it is especially in sciences that we see the wonders of God, his power, wisdom, and goodness. So, you know, Leibniz, I can go on, there's Kepler, yes. there are others, uh, Copernicus, right. all of these great scientists believed that they were having a view, they were seeing the great order, the great, uh, the glory that, that God had created. And yet today we're, we're, we tell children that it's chaos, that there's, it's all accidents, that they are the product of accidents, and that's why we have abortion. I believe abortion is also part of the whole um, yes. uh, system based on evolution, that well, well, these are just... Uh, that's really an offshoot of genetics. Yes. They're testing the, the amniotic fluid for any imperfections, and in that case there'll be an abortion uh, to determine the sex of the child in advance and so forth. Well, that's because... Genetic Thorn, disorders. Yeah. Right. Thorndike and the others uh, viewed evil as being of genetic origin. In other words, if you had the right genes, you were okay. Uh, that evil came out of the, ba the bad genes. So just get rid of the genetically. Uh, that was an offshoot of Stakel and some of the others. Yeah. Oh, yeah. Who felt bad heredity was responsible for certain diseases. Right. Right. Yes. Is there a connection between um, evolution, the teaching of evolution for these many years in public schools, and the rise of what is now called values clarification? Teaching. For one thing, I don't know why they add the word clarification if they want to teach values, but I don't know what clarification is supposed to mean. But is there a connection between oh, yes. the teaching you and evolution? You're, you're teaching that morals are relative. You see, there are no absolutes. There are no absolutes in in uh, in, in the evolution in the world of, of evolution. There are no absolutes, particularly right. <laughs> no moral absolutes, and so you have what is known as situational ethics. And values uh, change with civilizations, and you have your values. Your parents have the, uh, their values, and and uh, as you know, the the uh, psychologists created these hierarchy of, of values. Uh, uh, Kohlberg and, and and the others, Maslow's hierarchy of, uh, of values, and and they simply what they try to do is remove religion from every aspect of life. And so they've got to substitute it with something. Uh, and they say that Maslow was a very moral person. I mean, you know, that he believed in morality. But he had to find a non-divine, a non-religious base for it. And so he invented uh, his hierarchy of, of values. And, and, of course, he says that this is something that you develop. Uh, and uh, Colbert came out with a with uh, a variant view of values clarification, that is, that you decided what your values were. If you were, for example, you turned out that you were a homosexual, well, that was your value. And so then you, uh, you went ahead and you, could, you affirmed your, your value publicly. That's why we have gay pride parades these days. Why do you have, you know, 200,000 homosexuals marching in, in San Francisco these days? because it's part of values clarification. It's not just to annoy. No, no, they learned it all in public school, you see. Well, you have to say they learned something. In yeah. 
but it's insidious and it's destructive and it's destroyed our, our civilization. It's, it's, it's killing us all. Yeah. But uh, there, you know, uh, the Ten Commandments are what were the basis of this country. Yeah. And you cannot maintain this civilization on, on the shifting sands of, of moral relativism. Do you think uh, the values clarification? I think the values clarification programs and courses uh, arose out of a necessity or more out of reaction to charges by Christians that. Uh, no, no. They arose out of a deliberate attempt to undermine Christian values. And there are no alternatives. Yeah. Mm -hmm. But when you read Dewey and the humanists, you discover that they made a concerted effort that this is all pre-planned. They knew what they were doing. Yes. yes. Uh, that this is not accidental, it's not haphazard, that these are decisions, these are value decisions that were made in the early part of the century by the educators whose intention it was to uh, get religion uh, out of the schools, out of the people, and to substitute capitalism, individualism, and Christianity with socialism, collectivism, and atheism or humanism. Andrew White's two volumes, The uh, Warfare of Science Against Christianity. Yes. The History of the Warfare of Science Against Christianity, in which he gloated over the fact that the clergy had finally been thrown out of the administration of all the universities. Yes. And that was before the turn of the century. I'd like to continue by reading a sentence from Sigmund Freud in a letter to an associate on uh, the 22nd of December, 1897, because this is very essentially tied into the whole subject of evolution and where you seek your power and your inspiration. And Freud wrote this with a great deal of excitement and delight. And I quote, I can scarcely detail for you all the things that resolve themselves into excrement for me, the new Midas, unquote. In other words, even as Midas turned everything into gold with his touch. Freud saw everything turning into excrement at his touch and was excited about it because that was the area of true meaning now. Well, that I think we are seeing in education from the early years on up through graduate school. They have this new Midas touch a la Freud. Everything they touch turns to excrement. And, and the journals of education are full of it. <laughs> you know, uh, uh, this is what they mean by right. BS degree? Right. <laughs> <laughs> yes. You know, Rush, the graduate schools of education uh, turn out uh, thousands of doctors of education every year. And they become a just one great part of the parasitic class in America. They do nothing, <coughs> nothing productive. Mm -hmm. they, they add nothing to our gross national product. They, they do nothing uh, uh, creative, but uh, they've got to have jobs. They've got to be supported. Oh. And uh, I suppose uh, it's like shoveling. <laughs> <laughs> but then they fill these journals of education with this worthless drivel. 
yes. that nobody reads but just fill the stacks of these libraries. Uh, you know, you, you, have you been through, uh, I'm sure Russia yes. recently been through in a university library and looked through the journals of education and every month more of them and more of them with articles that are really not worth reading. Well, in every uh, offbeat field you're getting a proliferation of journals. The journals in black studies, the journals in women's studies, they're increasing at a phenomenal rate, and a good many universities seem to feel that they have lost any uh, right to uh, consideration and respect if they don't have a journal of women's studies. Yes. Well, it, it's had the same effect, though, in the world of journals, scholarly journals, and now moving into books that took place in magazines. You know, the, the business with the magazines was started by McGraw, of McGraw-Hill, who decided that the old-fashioned industrial magazine, which covered everything in an industry from management to the unions, including the stocks, the movement of the stocks and everything else, and the leading characters and whatnot, was ease more easily promoted if it was broken into the cat professional categories inside. So you had a magazine for chemists and a magazine for rubber chemists and so forth and so on. So now you have this magazine all splintered all across the board. And there's hardly any general publications and those that continue to exist, Atlantic, Harper's and whatnot, only do so under subsidy. They can't really make a living in the commercial market anymore because we have now a population that feels that general reading is a waste of time. You have to have, you spend your time reading on something that's going to help you on the job. Well, you extend this into the university level, into the journals. Everything becomes splintered and you have monographs and so forth. And now it's that way in publishing. If you take a manuscript to a New York publisher, he calls in the marketing department, and the marketing department wants to know what segment of the market will the book appeal to. Yes. And unless it can be affixed to a particular segment of exactly. the market, they're not going to publish. Yeah. Uh, Pat Knopf said to me, you know, it's trouble with your writing, Otto. He said, uh, it's not pedantic. He said, it's not covered with all those footprints from the academy. On the other hand, he said it isn't what you'd call lowbrow popular. That's right. He said, you're in between. I said, well, that's where most people are. But he doesn't publish yes. for most people. The book by James Nichol on God and Mathematics was read with considerable interest by a number of publishers who found it exciting reading, as you did. But they said it is not tailored to a specific market. They didn't question yes. the fact that its content was unique, that it was a groundbreaking book, but it was not tailored to a specific market, and therefore they said, uh, regretfully, we must say we cannot publish it. Editors do not decide anymore. Marketing men do. Right. But I see a market for it. I see homeschoolers who oh, are interested sure. in math Absolutely. And, and religion and want to see the connection between the two. Mm -hmm. I think it's going to be an enormously popular book among homeschoolers and Christian schools who have long been seeking some uh, affirmation that mathematics has something to do with, with God's world. Sure.
Otto and I know a very prominent publisher of one of the bigger publishing firms in the United States who is governed by what his salesmen say about a book. The fact that he, who is the sole owner of the firm, may like a book cuts no ice. He's afraid to say, go ahead and publish this book. If his salesmen say, we don't like it, he doesn't want to offend them. Yes. Well, you know, that, that used to be the prerogative of the gentleman publisher of New York who published what he liked. Mm -hmm. You know, he was usually uh, uh, wealthy, and of course he considered authors as a sort of stable uh, racehorses, and you hoped that one of them would win a race, would become a bestseller, and would make you a lot of money, but uh, there aren't too many of those publishers any, any longer. As a matter of fact, they're all gone. What we do have today are a lot of small little publishers uh, that are trying to specialize, but of course they can't get their books into bookstores. Mm -hmm because the large chains like Walden Books and B. Dalton will only handle the accounts in the books of large firms like Simon & Schuster or a Random House. They won't deal with these small publishers, of which there are many now all over the United States. So it, 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 is, uh, it, it has done an awful job in trying to get the word out to people. That's why there's so much mail-order publishing these yes. days, and that's why... Uh, uh, you have you uh, you have to do it yourself, just as uh, Rush you do with Ross House. You've got to uh, uh, take matters into your own hands because you could spend months, years trying to get a book published by a uh, commercial publisher, and then even if they publish it, they won't sell it. Yes. Well, today the uh, bookstores, of course, uh, con the. Uh, Publisher and the publisher cons the uh, author. Yes, he knows that uh, the author cannot afford to sue him. Then uh, the bookstore tells the publisher, "We can't sell this book. Shall we return the boxes that we took on consignment?" Knowing that the publisher is going to say, "No, keep them. Uh, just send us a nominal sum." And you can go into the major bookstores today and see tables of new books marked down. Oh, yes, yes. That's the the remainder operation also, which yeah, is... Oh, well, these are, are not, remainders, not remainders. Newly published books. Uh -huh. The author doesn't get any money from remainders. That's true, that's true. Incidentally, what we have in the United States now is really a kind of two, uh, two cultures you have a Christian culture and your secular culture. Your secular bookstores generally don't handle the books that the Christian bookstores handle. Uh, you've got your magazine rack and your ball, Walden, Walden books and your B. Dalton. You don't see any Christian magazines there. No. They may have a dozen magazines on crocheting and a dozen magazines on wrestling but they won't have a single Christian magazine on the stand there. So that you really have Two distribution systems, well, we've got two a, cultures we've living got side the, by we've side. We've got the largest Christian ghetto in the world, <laughs> which is occupied by the majority of Americans. Mm -hmm. And they've been put in that ghetto, intellectual ghetto, literary ghetto, and so forth, cultural ghetto, by the minority. That's true. It's because the minority controls the distribution system. Yes. It's as simple mm -hmm. as that. And it's quite an accomplishment. 
Yes. I, I did want to bring up a point on the, on, on the matter of evolution and the arguments mm -hmm. that were used by the Supreme Court to, uh, uh, to uh, you know, turn away or to reject the uh, Louisiana creation science law. And the, the, according to the court, the intent of the 1981 Louisiana law was, quote, clearly to advance the religious viewpoint that a supernatural being created humankind, unquote. And therefore, the law violates the First Amendment's prohibition on a government establishment of religion. Now, is it an establishment of religion rush to simply bring to one's attention that, that the world was created by a supernatural what they are doing is to establish a religion, humanism. Yes. And say that uh, only humanism has a legal standing in the United States. But if that's an establishment of religion, then it equally is uh, unconstitutional. Yes. It's not. Yes. Well, then how do they get away with it? Because they control the courts. It's as simple as that. Yeah, yeah you, you don't have an alternative court. You mean to say that our Supreme Court is not a neutral arbiter? <laughs> <laughs> you mean they're prejudiced? Ed Vieira's book, uh, Pieces of Eight, pointed out that one attorney who had the temerity to bring the sound money issue to court four times in a row was disbarred. Mm -hmm. I see. Now, I see. what the founders meant was the establishment of religion was the national church. Yes. And... The establishment of a religion clause has been stretched now to include a four-letter nursery, four-sentence nursery prayer, nailing the Ten Commandments to the wall of a classroom. That's establishing a, re a religion. Now you know that grown men know better than this. Yes, of course they do. And you know that what they're expressing is prejudice, yeah. and you know that they are out to deliberately destroy all Christianity in the United States. Yes. That, and you know, that's beautifully demonstrated in Rhode Island, where the, uh, uh, the schools, uh, I forget who it was, but somebody wanted the, the children in the schools to recite the preamble to the Constitution of Rhode Island. And the, um, you, uh, the uh, what is it, the, the ACLU has protest gone to court to protest it because the preamble uh, talks about God, the Creator. So you can't even recite the preamble of the Rhode Island Constitution in the schools because now that constitutes an establishment of religion. How far can this go? Well, it can go to the point of total suppression. And that's where it's heading. Yes. Are we going to get off the, in God we trust, off the coins? Yes, I'm sure. And also the state uh, coats of arms. Some of the states have a cross on the coat of arms and, and religious uh, statements in Latin. Yes. In one county of New Mexico, the state, the county seal, which had a cross, has been abolished by the courts. Oh. I know that in the Pennsylvania Supreme Court, uh, in the, in the capital of, at Harrisburg. They have a painting over the judge's seats, and the painting is of the Decalogue of Moses <laughs> receiving the Ten Commandments. It's going to be pretty difficult. Of course, you can always paint over that. You, you know. can paint over that. <laughs>
and yeah. they may very well do that. I, mean, I, I guess well they shouldn't that. say that because they're liable to... Right next well, door to us, Mexico to abolished Christianity oh, yeah. in its constitution. Sure. In 1936, Lazaro Cardenas yeah. had thousands of priests and nuns massacred in Mexico, mm -hmm. and nobody in the United States ever heard about it. No. Oh, there was her, uh, you, you know, the uh, School and Society magazine published by Cattell reported on what was going on in Mexico very objectively. He did. Didn't, uh, yeah. Yes. He didn't uh, comment on it. All he would do is report that uh, uh, the Christian schools had been closed, the Catholic schools, and that religion was forbidden in the Mexican schools. Right. Oh. And I suppose they, they used that as a model for what was to come in the United States. The first communist constitution in the Western Hemisphere in yeah. Mexico. And yet most Americans right next door don't even know this. Yes. Mm -hmm. But wouldn't you say, Rush, that that's all the more reason why Christians should withdraw their children from the public schools, that it's so obviously uh, anti-Christian? If they don't, God will judge them. I believe that, absolutely. I don't enjoy saying that, but I don't see how you can say anything else. Yes. Well, what is the percentage of Christian school uh, Christian children who are still in the public schools? Would you say that it's over 50%? Oh, yes. Oh, yes. However, the good news is that 35% of the children of this country are in home schools and Christian schools. 30%? No. 35. 35%? Yes. That's amazing. I estimated it somewhere between... Uh, 25 and 33 mm -hmm. but when Bill Moyer was out here and I was uh, discussing that with him he said I've been authoritatively told it is 35 percent uh-huh they're sitting on that yes well of course you know there are many uh, Christian families that will not register with the state yes, they're keeping true. a low profile and they don't register the kids no oh. in other words they don't uh, you see, in many states, homeschoolers are required to register with the Board of Education or with the superintendent of, uh, of schools. For example, in Michigan, they estimate that there are between 5,000 and 10,000 Christian families that are educating their children at home, and only about 400 have actually registered with the state. So uh, There's another factor. Uh, growing number of Catholic and Protestant parents and a handful of parents who are libertarian are having their babies at home with a midwife uh, and they are not registering the birth of the child therefore the child is legally non-existent now, this is a growing factor like the old believers yes yeah. And uh, the people who are doing this are amazing. Now, some uh, are... It's illegal, of course. It's illegal. Uh, yes. You're supposed to get a Is social security right? oh, for yes. five. Uh -huh. Uh -huh. The IRS but gets very involved. Yes, except that the child is not legally alive unless his birth has been registered, so there are ways around it. However, while some of them are very militant people, a great many of them are mild-mannered. It's simply their way of saying, I'm not going to join them. I'm going to go my way.
Isn't yes. it strange? And they are homeschooling their children. Yes. This is a vast grassroots mo uh, movement. This is not something that's happening from the top down. It's happening from the bottom up. Mm. The rebellion against the whole humanist public school system and the system in general is coming from the bottom up. That's the amazing thing about well, that's it. Well, it's very encouraging. I'll, I'll withdraw my comment about American slaves. Oh, well, yeah, well, you still have the boob tube watches, the, the, mm -hmm. the, the so-called couch potatoes right. in America. But You've met some of these parents and children. Sure. Uh, you uh, didn't know it because yeah. they don't carry a flag identifying right. themselves. Sure. But they're non-existent people. Yeah. And they're strongly Christian, and yes. they resent this satanic public school system that wants to force them to hand their children over. So when right. you have the combination of satanic schools and government force behind them, you get rebellion like you've never had it before mm. in this country. That's why this Christian grassroots rebellion is something which has not been experienced yet. And I think the NEA and the educators and the bureaucrats are going to be quite surprised when they try to round up these people mm -hmm. and try to force them to do things which they That's, you know, uh, clearly the, don't want The difference want to. between uh, the, the way the Christian school movement grew and the home school movement. Yes. The Christian schools were obviously visible yes. and uh, it was easy to identify them, or fairly easy, and uh, so there was a, a frontal attack against the Christian schools. Homeschool movement has grown so quietly and so rapidly and in, in such massive numbers that uh, that it reached. You know, the phrase you used, Sam, the other day was a critical mass yeah. reached that stage before uh, anyone has tumbled onto the fact that it's there. And so I don't think you're going to see the same kind of frontal assault against homeschools that you did against Christ Christian schools, but there probably will be. Uh, a backdoor attack, and I think you start to see it now in the child abuse laws. The oh, yes. of child abuse laws. Well, that's one of the reasons why I've uh, I've organized with some colleagues uh, a national organization called Parents for Unalienable Rights in Education, mm. with the acronym PURE. Pure. Mm -hmm. The purpose of the organization is to mobilize parents in defense of parental rights, so that they can fight this business of child abuse laws and the public school uh, establishment and the state education and uh, educators and bureaucrats. Uh, and this has to be done. You've got to organize resistance on a nationwide basis and they've got to understand that they do have unalienable rights. Our, our Declaration of Independence speaks of unalienable rights. Do you want to tell those who are listening how they can uh, join PURE? Well, give them they, the address and information. The address is in, uh, in Amarillo, but the simplest way for them to get in touch with Pure at this time to really is to uh, write or call my publisher in Idaho. I don't have the address of Pure right in front of me, but if they write to P.O. Box 45161, Boise, Idaho, 83711, and uh, ask for information about Pure. We'll make sure to that they get it. They write the letter. Well, they can uh, write to uh, to uh, the Paradigm Company, right. the Paradigm Company at P.O. Box four five one six one, Boise, Idaho eight three seven one one. Let me give the phone number in case sure, they want to save themselves the time. They can call two zero eight three two two four 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 zero. That's 
208-322-4440. Why not say a word about your most recent book? Because I think they should also uh, be informed about that. Well, The, the New Illiterates, yes. which, has been, which has been put back in print by the Paradigm Company. I wrote The New Illiterates back in 1973 to bring up to date the literacy situation. You know, Rudolf Flesch wrote his book in 1955, mm. and Jean Shaw wrote her book in the 1960s, and so by the 70s, we still had a reading problem, and I mm -hmm. wanted to find out why we still had it, and so mm -hmm. I wrote the book, The New Illiterates. And of course, things have gotten much worse today. By 1988, the situation is much worse than it was in 1973, and so we've reissued the book with an, with an additional uh, 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 preface to it, bringing it up to date. There's one thing in the book, though, that, that will interest many readers, and that is I include a full a reprint of the first critique ever written uh, concerning the look-say method. And it was written by one of the Boston schoolmasters back in the 1840s. Hmm which shows you how far back this business mm -hmm. goes. Yeah, but yeah. But Horace Mann... That was the period. Yes. Horace Mann and Charles Sumner and that whole crowd. Yeah, and they introduced the whole word method in the schools of Boston, and it was such a disaster that the Boston schoolmasters rebelled against it, and they wrote this lengthy critique on why you cannot teach children to read English as if it were Chinese. Mm. And we have the very same situation yes, today. as ideographs or pictographs. Right. Well, we have about four or five minutes. Do you have something you'd like to say by way of a conclusion, Gary? Uh, on this last point about the uh, look-say method, uh, you've mentioned that uh, it's a, uh, an ideographic method. I think you said uh, at one time that it was originally developed as a method to teach deaf children. Yes, yes. It was invented by uh, Thomas H. Gallaudet. Reverend Gallaudet was the director of the Hartford Asylum for the Deaf and Dumb. And he taught the deaf to read by a sight method that is juxtaposing pictures and words because they couldn't hear sounds. And so he thought that, well, maybe normal kids could be taught to read this way and save them the pain of learning the alphabet and the sounds of the letters. And he created a little primer, the first look-say primer in the United States called the Mother's Primer. And uh, the first line of that primer is, uh, Frank had a dog, its name was Spot. <laughs> Believe it or not. <laughs> and and uh, that primer was adopted by Horace Mann in the Boston Public Schools, and it turned out to produce such disastrous results that they then went back to a phonetic method of teaching. But it took the Boston masters to write quite a critique of it before they were able to convince uh, the public that this new method of teaching was horrible. And so the method was relegated to the dustbin until the turn of the century when the progressives dug it up, brought it back, and then applied to it the methods that they had uh, uh, perfected in their laboratories with animals, with behavioral psychologists. And then it came back as Dick and Jane, or the Macmillan readers, and it has caused millions and millions of youngsters to become functionally illiterate. As a matter of fact, there was, a, there was an article in the Los Angeles Times not too long ago about a man, a 50-year-old man, who spent 18 years teaching in the high schools of Oceanside, California, 
and he was illiterate. He had been taught to read by the look-same method. And of course he became a functional illiterate and then he spent years deceiving everybody. Only his wife knew that he was illiterate. He managed to get through graduate school and to get a job teaching social studies oh, in the high school. That and he was me illiterate. And recently he went to an adult literacy center to learn how to read. And they're teaching him now how to read by phonics and he's learning. But you can imagine the suffering this man has gone through because and of his students and also his students. have suffered. Yes. Well, you're well. really fighting to save this civilization, and I can see when the authorities really begin to realize what they're up against with the homeschooling <coughs> and the lack of registration and all the rest of it—a considerable collision. Which itself is going to serve as a catalyst of change. Yes. Oh, yes. Well, our time is up. Thank you all for listening, and thank you, Sam. It's always a pleasure when you are here with us. Good night, all, and God bless you. Authorized by the Calcedon Foundation. Archived by the Mount Olive Tape Library. Digitized by Christ rules dot com